initiatives and out-of-the-box movements with an eye on the future. Today my guest is Boyd Cohen, author and urban strategist focused on the areas of urban innovation, sustainable development, entrepreneurship, smart cities and the internet of mobility. He's published three books, Climate Capitalism, The Emergence of the Urban Entrepreneur and Post-Capitalist Entrepreneurship. He's Dean of Research at the EADA Business School and jointly appointed at UVic. He's also a fellow at the Singapore University of Social Sciences in their fintech and blockchain group. And in 2017, he co-founded IOMob, a blockchain startup seeking to decentralise the mobility sector by providing an open protocol for the internet of mobility. We'll talk about that a little bit later too. He is also the current executive director of the Blockchain Cities Alliance, which launched in June 2018. Welcome to the show, Boyd. Thanks for taking the time out to speak to us today. Thanks for having me. Listen, I'm keen to hear about your upcoming trip to Australia. What brings you here in September? Well, a few things. So my project, IOMOB, just uh, entered into a joint venture and an investment from Centrality, which is a major blockchain venture studio out of New Zealand. And they have uh, active operations in New Zealand and Australia. So I wanted to come to visit with with our new partners. Uh, Also, Akasha, also known as um, Ms. Blockchain, uh, is our engagement director. She's based outside of Melbourne. And uh, through her networks, uh, we have uh, gained uh, access to and, and conversations with several people in Melbourne that we felt was worth me starting my Asia Pacific road trip in Down Under. Oh, fantastic. So it's really um, kind of lots of initial meetings with people down here in Melbourne and maybe yeah, New Zealand. I'll be keynoting an event uh, with the Blockchain Center and the RMIT around uh, Blockchain Cities as well on September 3rd in the evening. Okay. Well, listen, without further ado, what I was really interested in was, you know, how you profile a smart city. I was interested in the study that you did on the techies and asking them about a couple of questions that you were just wanting to test a hypothesis on. And I really wanted you to define what you think a smart city is or what a smart city achieves. Yeah, so you're referring to a project I did. So I've been in the smart city space literally for about 12 years now, and I've seen the evolution. I actually identified a few years ago basically three generations of smart cities where the first generation was tech push, tech driven, uh, coming from multinational tech companies trying to push their technology solutions onto cities and branding it as a smart city thing. And smart cities 2.0 was city led. So instead of the tech companies pushing the agenda, the cities themselves, the administrators were pushing the agenda, figuring out what their vision was, uh, and then determining how technology can play a role. So I call that city led technology enabled. And then 3.0, 
is a totally different phenomenon. It is um, co-creation with citizens and where citizens take an active role in what they want in their city and then actually co-creating solutions for it. So it was in this sort of context of reflecting on the evolution of the smart city space that a colleague, Rob Adams and, my, and I, we went to the Smart City Expo, which I go to every year. It's in Barcelona. I think this year they'll have about 20,000 people from I think it's something like 200 cities around the world. Um, and we went around asking them, these are people, technologists at Microsoft and robotics companies. And we said, all right, what, what, what do you enjoy about living in your city? And what we discovered was that even the most technologically driven smart cities professionals um, never talked about technology when we asked them what they enjoyed about life in their city. They all talked about cafes and access to the outdoors and low congestion, uh, low air contamination, friends, access to family, good public transit. It was all these things and you're like, you know what? Um, yeah, we need a rethink on what, what smart cities is if the people that work in the profession, when they actually are forced to think about what they value in city life, don't think about technology, then why is the conversation always starting with technology? And so uh, Rob and I, he runs a, a project called Six Fingers, uh, which is basically using human-centered design, design thinking, for different industries and, and, and my background in smart cities and innovation entrepreneurship, we said, what if we merge these ideas and said, all right, what if you rethought a smart city from a human perspective? And as, or what, what emerged from that was something we called happy citizen design, which is think instead of putting the city in the center of a graphical and a, a model for developing a city to be smarter, you put the citizen in the center and you put around that model, you think about, well, what are the things that drive their happiness? And then once you figure out what drives people to be happy living in a city, then you can figure out if technology can help you or not, rather than drive the discussion with technology. Yeah. And so what's been your experience when you've been, you know, going around the world, you know, what cities are doing smart city policy and planning well? What ones are putting people front and centre of their of their policy and strategy? Yeah, I mean, in my first sort of analysis and publication of the three generations of smart cities, I talked about how not all cities go through all three stages. And when you hear the three generations, you presume, okay, so each city goes through each one of those. Some skip some and some never get to some. So like Medellin is a good example in Colombia of a city that never really did one or 2.0 smart cities, but has been doing 3.0 for more than a decade, which is basically engaging citizens. In the case of Medellin, it was mostly about engaging low-income citizens living in poor neighborhoods outside of the city center and saying, how can we make your life better? with the recognition that if we can improve the quality of life for lower income people, then that will actually raise all boats and improve the quality of life for people in the city in general. And they've been doing that for a long time. Um, Bologna and Italia has been really, and Italy has been really impressive around um, co-creation, not just in the ways we have been thinking about in the last couple of years around like strategy and project implementation, but in Bologna, they've also done co-creation with policy so that citizens are taking a more active role in the policy development for the city. 
Vancouver. I lived in Vancouver many years ago in Canada. They had this great initiative with their, I think he's their former mayor now, Gregor Robertson. After he took over, he said, let's co-create a citywide strategy for the future of the city. And so they, they engaged with 30,000 residents over a period of a year in different formats, like a town hall format, online, in different venues, city hall. And they asked people what they wanted in their city. And they basically aggregated the feedback and came up to the conclusion that they should create an aspirational goal of becoming the greenest city in the world by 2020. And then they came up with key targets around how much renewable energy, how many people are taking bikes or walking to work, uh, how many jobs are created in the green economy, um, uh, climate, uh, GHG emissions metrics. And this was all sort of based off of what citizens wanted. So I think, you know, there's some, yeah, wow, yeah there's some great examples of cities, small and large in, in developed countries and developing countries that are embracing this idea. I mean, I can see a theme in the books you've authored. Guide me through the process for you. You've, you know, from what led you to write your first book to where you've parked yourself recently with a book called Post-Capitalist Entrepreneurship. I mean, I certainly get the impression that you feel that these cities are about entrepreneurs being front and centre as well. Yeah, it's kind of an interesting evolution between amongst the three. Whether I write another fourth book or not, I have no idea. It's not on my agenda at the moment i'm too busy but the first one came about so i was in but it's kind of funny story i was i when i was finishing my phd someone handed me a book called natural capitalism which was published in 1999 by uh paul hawken and amory lovins and hunter lovins well i met hunter a few years after that that book inspired me to think about how we could make our world a better place through sustainable innovation, which is basically what the idea was. How can you align the interest of business with the interest of the environment? That's what that book was. And it's, you know, considered sort of the Bible to this day of that concept. Yeah. So it inspired a lot of my work for many years. And then, you know, many years later, I said, you know what, we're having this problem with climate change, which is that people think that if you take action on climate change, you're going to sacrifice your economy and jobs and all these things. And I, I said, I think we need to paint a different picture. We need to show the world how it's possible to engage in a low carbon economy and succeed as a result. And I reached out to Hunter Lovins, who I had met yeah. and said, you know what, I think we should write a, we should write the sequel to natural capitalism and call it climate capitalism and do a similar thing to share across different industries, success stories, in countries and cities and in companies, how they're actually benefiting economically by engaging in a low carbon economy. Yeah. So that's what, that's what that book was about. Then what happened was that book had more of a focus on national policy. And at that time, most people were believing that um, the, the conference of the parties with the United Nations was going to eventually solve climate change. And as we know, it still hasn't happened. And so, after we published that book, I got frustrated with the slow pace of multilateral action and national action around the world and said, and started looking around the world to say, well, where is the right lever to actually make change faster? And I quickly came on cities as the best. And it's not that surprising because I've lived in a lot of cities around the world. I've lived in Copenhagen and Denver and Boulder and Vancouver and Chile, Santiago, Chile and Buenos Aires, wow. Barcelona, Madrid. Oh my God. I lived in all these great, 
Yeah. I've lived in all these great cities in the Western world anyway. And so I've been inspired by a lot of cities I've lived in. And I was already working in smart cities, but without calling it that. And so I put two and two together and say, you know what? We need to start focusing more on cities as a solution to climate change. And I got into smart grids for cities and then smart cities. And, and so I was doing that for many years. And then um, my PhD is in entrepreneurship. So it's, I've always looked at innovation entrepreneurship as sort of a core part of everything I do. And to me, smart cities is often about how can you be more innovative? How can you be smarter with how you uh, do processes or engage with citizens or uh, solve transportation problems, either through entrepreneurship or innovation approaches? And, and then my, so my second book was sort of looking at how the demographics are changing, how the world is urbanizing, and how cities are increasing, increasingly becoming hotbeds for innovation entrepreneurship. And not just the famous ones we always think about, but many other cities and all the different resources that are available in cities for entrepreneurs to thrive, like that didn't exist before, like co-working spaces everywhere. Barcelona has more more than 300 co-working spaces. Yeah, right. um, Fab labs, fab labs everywhere. So entrepreneurs, aspiring entrepreneurs and inventors can prototype in a fab lab in their community and get access to 3D printers and, and prototype and test if a concept is viable or not. And then publish it in a crowdfunding platform and never even raise external venture capital funding. So the world's changing. I think it's urbanizing and also entrepreneurship is urbanizing. It's moving away from the Silicon Valley warehouse style, suburban sprawled type of innovation spaces to internal urban areas, innovation districts and cities. So I was looking at all those trends. That was my second book. And then my last book is called Post-Capitalist Entrepreneurship, which is kind of funny. Maybe it should be my last book because my first book was Climate Capitalism, which shows that at the time I was a believer that capitalism could solve some of the world's biggest problems in that case, particularly climate change. And now my last book is Post-Capitalist Entrepreneurship, which is saying, wait a minute, maybe capitalism isn't the answer. Maybe we need something beyond capitalism. And actually, it's already happening. There are some really cool examples using um, blockchain technology, uh, new forms of cooperative uh, organization models that are challenging our thinking of capitalism and redefining how people can organize to solve people's needs in a way that maybe generates income and profit, but in a way very different than what capitalism would Require. I mean, this is probably a good opportunity to come in and talk about your role in IOMOB or the Internet of Mobility and the decentralised approach you have to solving a very human problem, which is getting around. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? And what does blockchain offer that normal businesses don't don't offer? You know, traditional businesses, I should say, don't offer. No, a good question. So. Yeah, of course, uh, IMOB is very close to my heart, so happy to talk about that. Um, yeah. So we started IOMOB, we actually started a previous version of IOMOB about a year and a few months ago, and then we started really focusing on the, the vision of IOMOB as it is today in November of 2017. And so we, many of your listeners living in Melbourne or in cities around the world will, will recognize, as you said, um, that it's not always easy getting around cities. We have congestion problems. 
cities can't keep up with demand for public transit solutions. Public transit can never solve all mobility problems because it just doesn't always make sense. Like when you have small density of people living in a small town or uh, a little neighborhood where there's only you know 100 people living, you can't really bring a metro there. Generally, it's not cost effective for taxpayers to do that. So we need new mm -hmm. solutions. And then entrepreneurs are coming in and trying to solve those problems with all kinds of new ideas like bike sharing and now electric scooter sharing, car sharing, car pooling. Um, there's all these new sh mo shared mobility solutions emerging in the world. Plus, of course, ride hailing and taxis and the Ubers of the world. There's all these competing forces in cities that are trying to deliver mobility services to end users. But at the moment, each of those mobility services, for the most part, is in its own siloed space. So every car share service has their own app and their own technology and their own user base. Every bike share system has the same. Public transit has their own apps and their own user base. Yeah. What we're failing to do is enable a seamless access to public and private mobility services. That is what is missing. So if you go to some, what we would call Web 2.0 monopolistic type approaches like an Uber model, they would prefer to start, a, they're realizing the same thing yeah. and their model is to, well, let's go acquire all these other mobility services and package them in to end users so we can own the user and own the, all these mobility services. Our vision is a Web 3.0 blockchain version is we don't own or deliver any mobility service by ourselves. All we do is create the enabling infrastructure so that the end user can get seamless access to public and private mobility services. Maybe the best service for me to go from where I am right now to where I wanna go, maybe the best solution is a combination of bike share to the train. But nobody offers that. Yeah. Nobody gives you that combined routing option right now that shows you, all right, here's all the mobility services in the market. You don't need to see all of them, but we can allow you to see any ones that are, are best for you for what you need to do right now. And, and that could be any combination of public and private mobility services. And if we can get to that, we can create more efficiency in cities. We can make life easier for people, reduce congestion. And, and obviously uh, get faster from A to B in ways that are more uh, your preference as an individual. So that's what we're building and enabling is this open ecosystem for collaboration between public and private mobility services. So then that goes, to, go ahead. And if people were wanting to use it though, what would that interface look like? You say it's it would be designed, I, I expect everything that you're working on would be keeping design thinking in mind. What well, what does that interface look like? What does a transaction look like, and who runs it? I mean, the network runs it. Is it a, is it a bunch of nodes around certain regions that are, I guess, authorizing transactions? How does it work? Yeah, yeah, good question. So it's all a decentralized ecosystem. So we're just building the technology that will enable the different actors required to participate in the ecosystem to connect to the protocol. And then they can choose their own business models and their own service offerings on top of the protocol, however they want. So we'll have an end user application in cities. Um, we're building our own white label uh, end user mobility application, which would 
uh, allow an end user to do what I just said. It will allow them to discover mobility services, do multimodal routing of those services, book any of those services that require booking, like trains don't require, well, like Metro doesn't require booking, but a taxi does. So if it requires booking, you'll be able to do it inside the app and payment inside the app across the board, any mobility service connected to the protocol. And that would apply whether you're in your home city of Melbourne or you get on a plane and you go to Toronto. It wouldn't matter. You could, your identity and your payment capabilities could travel with you and your preferences for I like bike share, I don't like buses, I like trains, I don't like whatever. All those things, your driver's license, if you want to have access to uh, driving a vehicle, whether it's a, a motorcycle, electric scooter, or a car, whatever. So all those things can go with you around the world. So we're building that app but we're not going to operate it. We're not operating a business with that app. We're just building that as part of our whole stack so that other mobility companies and entrepreneurs can actually customize that app for their use, rebrand it however they want, but it will have all those capabilities to do that whole process from discovery to, to booking and payment um, anywhere in the world. In fact, just as a side note, it's kind of exciting one of the first companies where startups we're working with that is going to build on top of the imob protocol is based in london they're called city moss and their goal is to create something called city moss assist which is a mobility service using our white labeled app that will allow disabled people to have access to real-time mobility services that will meet whatever particular needs they have. They have visually visual impairment or physical impairment around walking, whatever it is, they will um, ensure that the APIs, the data being drawn to those, being driven to the IOMOB protocol in the cities where they're operating this app, um, has the relevant data about like, does the train station, this particular train station have the accessibility requirements needed for this type of disability and all that stuff. So that's just an example of how this will all play out. But then there'll be other actors like that, but with different roles. Like we have a role for a validator. It's not our role. We don't, we're not a validator, but we'll need validators. And validators do things like in real time confirm that a driver announcing their availability actually is legally allowed to drive people in yeah. that city. There are cities where Uber is not allowed. So then they, you can't allow Uber to connect to IOMOB in a city that's not allowed. So. There's roles for all these different people. And one of the core roles in the middle of that whole thing is a hub, which we're building the technology for, which is basically um, connects supply and demand in real time through these different apps and mobility providers so that all the mobility services connected to the protocol can be discovered by any user using any app connected to the IML protocol. You know that's a massive job, don't you? That's like that sounds like a massive undertaking, and I'm only assuming that there are reasons why it hadn't been done before, and that's because it's incredibly complex. Yeah, uh, definitely. <laughs> it's definitely complex. Asked to be putting having all of those APIs, yeah, managing together in one app. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, there's a lot of complexity. You know what? I, the technology is less complicated than you think. I don't know if my CTO would agree with that statement, but this is my opinion. I think the hardest thing for us is um, cities and mobility service providers agreeing to collaborate in this way because 
we're changing the paradigm. We're saying, why are you spending all your time and money building your own silo, building all your own technology stack, and building your own independent closed network effect, and disconnecting your service in a fragmented way from every other service that's available in the market in a way that results in so much inefficiency. Why yeah. not collaborate and allow interoperability across mobility services? Yeah. Um, and that's, you know, that's hard. That, that, that's business development, but that's also just cultural shift. Um, you know, cities are more inclined to understand this faster because the ones running the transit authorities understand how hard it is to solve this first mile, last mile problem, which is, you know, public transit cannot be good, cannot, is not always the most efficient way to get everybody everywhere. So what, what public transit authorities want to figure out is how can we enable interoperability between public transit and private services that are complementary to public transit, but don't try to replace public transit. Yeah. So we're finding cities are more embracing it, but they don't get blockchain very well. And then mobility service providers are very afraid of being part of an open collaborative system because they're concerned that they're going to lose competitors or their users will go elsewhere. And this goes to a point I, I didn't really answer yet. Uh, your second question, which yes. is why blockchain? What does blockchain do? Yes. This, what, is, what, what is the purpose for blockchain in this space? Yeah, and this is another. This is all another reason to answer that question in this way is another point you just made about why hasn't this been done before, and. Part of it is because blockchain didn't exist before, and I believe this is a very fundamental component of making this solution work, which has two components, really. The first one is it allows, so everyone talked about blockchain is allowing trustless relationships. So like you don't have to know the person you're going into business with. So when you talk about what blockchain can do for this mobility ecosystem, I'll give you a really tangible example that I think is powerful. We had an entrepreneur who has a, uh, a electric scooter sharing service in the US and he's launching the same service in Barcelona. And we were explaining to him the value and benefits of this open ecosystem. And he said, you know what, you're arguing one of the benefits is you can bring me more customers. We said, yeah, that's true. He said, I'm not going to need more customers. We said, what do you mean? No entrepreneur I've ever met says I don't need more customers. Hmm. He said, well, the city, his, the city and his own finances are going to restrict his ability to acquire more than 2,000 electric scooters. I said, okay, why is that a problem? He said, well, my analysis suggests that in Barcelona alone, there's probably demand for up to 100,000. Wow. So what he said is that quickly he will have way more demand than he will have ability to meet it. And what happens, and we all of your listeners will have had this experience trying to get a taxi from a specific taxi app, as an example, yeah. and there's none around. All right. What happens when you do that once or twice or three times and, and you didn't get one around you? You never open the app again. So he has a customer service problem. So we said we can connect your closed app with your closed networks to our IOMOB protocol only when you do not have an electric scooter close enough to that user. If your data suggests that your average user 
once they identify a scooter is lost further away than a six minute and 18 second walk, they won't, they, they'll close the app. All right. Then anytime your user opens the app and there's no scooter within that radius, you can have your app open to our protocol and your users can get exposure discovered. Another service that could actually serve their need right now because yours can't. And then you're going to say, well, why would he do that? Because he's basically giving his customer to a competitor. We say two things. One is it's better to do that and keep a customer happy than have them shut the app all the time and not use it again because they don't trust they'll find what they need. And secondly, and this is a really powerful thing that only can really happen in blockchain, is through smart contracts, that this scooter entrepreneur can establish a smart contract in IMOB that says anytime this, what he's doing is offloading demand is the term. Anytime I offload demand to the IOMOB community, I, I won't know who's going to, I don't care who's providing the service. I don't have to negotiate with any of them. I am charging 50 cents every time a service, a mobility service takes one of my users because I was unable to meet their needs. Mm, All right. Okay. So this allows him to solve a customer service problem and monetize a trip he could never have monetized before. He gets paid even though he can't deliver the service to, to his user. Mm. And that happens because of smart contracts and blockchain. Now, the other part of blockchain that's powerful here that we're using and employing is called um, crypto economic incentives. And I won't go into details there, but we will have our own token and that token can be used to incentivize um, the ecosystem and end users to embrace uh, IMOP. I mean, that's the big question though, isn't it? There's a lot of conversation about some amazing startups and IOMOB sounds as amazing as some of the others. And yet my question is, what do you think the trigger will be that allows people to embrace technology solutions like IOMOB that are decentralised, that do work with cryptocurrencies, that are working in a, in a space that people are unfamiliar with? Yeah, good question. I think we, we've made some very strategic decisions from the beginning in the design of IOMOB to minimize the presence or the necessity for an end user to engage with blockchain or even tokens or crypto. So an end user would never have to know that blockchain is powering this network. It's not relevant to them. We think that that's a, yeah. a flaw in a lot of blockchain projects that they're overselling blockchain and underselling what is the use case and the value of using the service that happens to be on blockchain. Yeah. So, so the end user won't have to actually know it's blockchain. It doesn't matter to them. And furthermore, the end user can use fiat currency. That is normal credit cards and cash, whatever they want. It's not that our crypto economic model around the tokens is, is I won't probably, it's probably too deep for, for your audience, but there's a thing called staking. Yeah. which is basically for the mobility providers that want to operate on IOMOB protocol will have to own tokens to operate on the protocol. That gives them eligibility to use the protocol. They don't have to pay a monthly service or pay tokens every month. They just have to possess tokens in a crypto wallet to operate on the protocol. 
End users have no obligation to own or possess or work with tokens. Having said that, end users will get loyalty points. Um, those loyalty points are actually portions of tokens, but they don't have to know their tokens because we don't want to confuse the end user with blockchain and crypto and all that stuff. But they will have these loyalty points for yeah. using it that will then be uh, um, allow them to get discounts on mobility services through the protocol. So I think the main thing is to, to remove the technology from the conversation and focus more on the experience, the end user experience, and that's what gets adoption. If we can share, as I've tried to do in this call, with, a, with future end users, and not just us directly, but also all the companies that are gonna be building apps and services on top of IMOP protocol, if we can all collectively share the value proposition for the end user, you can use any single app connected to this to IOMOB and you will be able to access any mobility service, public or private in your city and actually get routing that combines public and private whenever you want. And over time, this app will understand your preferences and actually send you recommendations on how to go from one place to another based specifically on your past mobility patterns and everything else. So it's, it's basically telling the story in the right way so that the end user understands the value for them and doesn't have to worry about blockchain and crypto. Yeah, right. And I guess it's been the experience you've had working in the smart city space for such a long time, focusing on issues like congestion and mobility that probably led you to trying to solve this big problem of just usability of, of both technology and ways of getting around. Yeah, I mean... I mean, it's a very... It kind of, it seems so basic, but yeah, there is nothing out there that coordinates all of these methods of transport, all of them, you know, the whole diversity of methods of transport, because it's it's more than train, bus and walking. You know, there are many other forms of transport and, and something like that would be amazing. What's your timeline like? What What's your roadmap look like? We're pretty excited. So we uh, are going to roll out some sort of early closed private beta in November, probably in Singapore, which is going to be our first launch city. And we mm. uh over the next year year and a half we'll be completing the build out of the base stack that i was describing from the smart contract through to the end user app and then we are actively in discussions and some of them are happening with our our down under partner centrality um with fiji and some other cities and countries around the world to roll out the protocol with public support uh, in, in several cities around the world. So it's, it's, even though blockchain is a decentralized technology and a lot of blockchain companies sort of assume you build the underlying technology and people just come and start using it, the data shows it doesn't happen that way. Even though it's basically free to use, um, you need to have the right incentives in place and actually you have to do the hard work. You have to go and do business development. You have to go and explain the value proposition to mobility providers, to cities and transit authorities. And so we're doing all that heavy lifting because we don't want to just build the tech and have it sit in a shelf. We want to build it and have it transform the mobility experience around the world. And for that to happen, you have to have great tech, but you also have to do all these other parts of the of the puzzle, which is going out and meeting with people and 
and helping them understand the value and getting them on board to, to start experimenting with it. So that's what we're working on. And how just I noticed you mentioned that you are launching it, it or the beta um, version in Singapore. How does Singapore rank from a blockchain perspective? It's on Australia's doorstep. And I notice, you know, Australia tries really hard in the blockchain space or the kind of innovation space, but they're nowhere near the level of innovation that I see from, from you know, my perspective that's happening in Singapore. How, how are you finding it? I know they're ahead in fintech, but they've spent so much money on their people that they've just got this incredible knowledge economy now. Yeah, very insightful. I agree with you. Um, I've been studying smart cities for a long, long time, been ranking smart cities using a bunch of metrics. And this year, literally about a month, six weeks ago, I published the first ever rigorous ranking of blockchain cities, uh, which looked at three dimensions. It looked at um, the ecosystem of blockchain startups in that city. It looked at what the city itself is doing to be a smart city and what kinds of experiments it's doing with blockchain as a government. And then it looked at the third component was within the national context. So um, it, are there regulations supportive of blockchain projects uh, with token uh, uh, issuance? Are they um, a good place to do business for startups and all that? And Singapore was uh, came out number one in my ranking. So um, to answer your question, uh, it comes out very strong. And that's one of the reasons we targeted Singapore early on is that we think of it as a beachhead strategy. Singapore particularly within Southeast Asia, but I think more more realistically globally, Singapore is looked at as a pioneer and an early adopter of all kinds of new innovations. And if you can have IAMOB function successfully in Singapore, it's gonna encourage other cities that look to Singapore as a role model to also explore adopting it as the proof comes in that this improves efficiency uh, of the public transit and the mobility experience in general. And I guess get some surveys going to assess people's happiness there. I mean, are people happy in yeah. Singapore? I don't know. Are they, how do you find Singapore? So, I, you know, it's, it's a really interesting question because I love Singapore. I've been there many times. I'm now, because of IOMOL, I'm going about every two months now. Um, which is not easy from Barcelona. It's a 13 hour direct flight. At least it's direct, but it's not close. But mm. when I complain about flight times, I shouldn't do that with people living in Australia, should I? No, never. Um, <laughs> never. never. Um, so, I, you know, Singapore is this amazing city that has gone through such radical transformation in such a short period of time to go from basically a fishing village to really world-class in almost everything they do. They have two universities that are top 15 in the world. You mentioned education has been a priority for them for many years. The level of English is really strong. Culture is great. Food is great. Um, architecture is amazing. Um, so there's so many great things about Singapore, but there is a but. Um, a lot of people complain that Singapore got where it got in part because it suppresses individual freedom. And it basically forces people to follow a certain path and they don't allow for as much creativity 
and in a, individualism as you find in in many Western countries. And that's I, mm. I I would agree with that. I've been there many times. I've spoken to many experts about the transformation, the society, the culture, the norms, the laws. You know, they're stricter there. They 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 have historically tried to create uh, sort of a narrow a narrow range of acceptable behavior from citizens. Um, they don't really mm. allow public protest. You can only protest the, the way I understand it. You can only protest in one park in the whole city state. And you have to get um, licensed and approved to be able to protest. You just, just can't go out on the street and hold out a sign and complain about the government or something. So, mm. yeah, I mean, they have suppressed some individual freedom, but at the same time, I think most people, if you compare what life was like for people in Singapore 30 years ago and what it's like today, it's ridiculous. It's no other country in the history of the world has ever transformed itself that fast. So sometimes you have to make some sacrifices in some areas to achieve such rapid success. Yeah, and I guess it'll be interesting to see if they encourage a bit more diversity in the future with the level of advancement that they're achieving at the moment. It's just It was just a question I had because, yeah, there has been a fair bit of oppression over there at the same time as a lot of progression. So, you know, there's it just that makes me think. Yeah. Listen, if people are, you know, wanting to touch base with you, what's the best way to do that? I know I'm obviously talking to you from Melbourne and you're heading here in September. Is there a way of seeing you when you're in Melbourne? You said you were speaking at the Blockchain Centre, am I right? I'm speaking with the people from Blockchain Centre, but I think... I just, I, I believe I'm actually speaking at a different venue. It's on September 3rd, uh, and it starts at around 6.30 at night. And I will have to um, share with you uh, offline. Give me the details. Yeah, share the details with me, and I'll put them in the show notes to um, certainly let people know that they can go there and hear more about the kind of entrepreneurship side of what you've been doing, as well as IOMOB. Both are very, very interesting. Sounds great. I appreciate it. It's been great talking to you. And listen, I'd also be interested to know how individuals and communities could best engage with their cities, just as a kind of a way of ending. How can they best engage with their cities to make changes they feel are strategic for the local community? Because in Australia... I wouldn't say that we're huge town hall goers. I don't know whether it's a different change in generation, but the gen there are generations that aren't as engaged. And I'm wondering what people can do to become more engaged, to nudge their cities into more entrepreneurial hubs like the ones you talk about. I honestly feel this is where I feel like um, you need a combination of smart cities 2.0 and 3.0. And what do I mean by that is you need some political commitment and leadership at the 2.0 level to actually really succeed in 3.0 level. There are some, there are some, you know, small examples of citizens taking over and like implementing projects the city didn't support and, and, you know, these little pop-up projects that sometimes work. But, but I feel like you know, if you don't have citizen engagement, I feel like one of the reasons you don't is that the cities themselves and the political leaders have not made it a priority. And if they don't make it a priority, they don't create vehicles for participation. Because as you said, like 
town halls don't work for everybody, especially the younger generation. They're not, they're so tech savvy. They want to be able to, if they want to make a comment on how to improve life in their city, they want to just like do it on an app or on Twitter or something like instantaneously. Yeah, or be working with the city in one of these maker spaces like Fab Labs yeah, where yeah. they actually feel they can come up with, a, you know, a proof of concept, an MVP, and then get it out there and just test it. But I guess it's about the cities being as responsive as it is for individuals to be as engaged. And I just think that, that, that for me, I think is one of the biggest challenges in Australia. I certainly don't know what it's like elsewhere, but in Australia it's engagement at that entrepreneurship level where people can actually do things with the city to solve local problems. Because let's be honest, a lot of what you talk about is, listen, I think the future, or certainly the Fab Labs talk about, the future is about the local community producing for the local community and servicing the local community as well, not expecting everything from elsewhere. I agree. I've been very actively involved in the Fab Lab and the Fab City movement. The Fab City movement emerged out of the Fab Lab movement, and the Fab City movement is aspiring for cities that sign up to it to actually, by 2054, produce pretty much everything they need within the broader city and regional area. And that is everything from food to clothing, to furniture, to energy. Um, and, and that's not just using fab labs, that's using, um, you know, rooftops for organic urban gardening. It's the whole thing, right? How do you create your city to be a, turn your city and be a productive city that's fairly self-sustained, but interconnected digitally with other cities. But I'm going to go back to my, my point I just made a minute ago that I really believe the city needs to take some initiative and leadership to create the vehicles and opportunities for citizens to, to engage more. So like Barcelona is really proactive with this maker movement and the fab city movement. We have a handful of fab labs in the city and the city has actually been supporting the FAB movement. In fact, Barcelona was the first city to actually sign up to be part of the FAB city commitment I just described. And Barcelona is one of the first cities in the world to create um, a, an area. Uh, uh, it's like a FAB, FAB neighborhood. It's a maker district where they're trying to connect all these existing maker spaces into a broader community initiative. Um, so what am I what am I trying to say? I totally believe in citizen engagement, citizen empowerment, citizen co-creation. I'm a big believer of it. I just also believe that for that to really thrive, you need policy, you need city administrators who get this and actually support and embrace it. And there's so many cool examples of that, like. Boston, I just talked about Barcelona, but Boston has a thing called the uh, New Urban Mechanics. New Urban Mechanics is a like a city office that was founded by their past mayor and another guy named Nigel Jacobs. And their vision was to enable local civic entrepreneurs, that is entrepreneurs trying to solve urban challenges, um, a space yeah. to come to when they have an idea to solve a local problem. And if the New urban mechanics think that their their problem they've identified is interesting and their solution could be useful too. They can help them incubate 
help them fund a pilot project, give them access to city infrastructure to test it. And if it works, they can roll it out to other parts of the city and then help them get introductions to other cities in the world. That is an example of a proactive approach to saying, we know we have entrepreneurs in our city who are probably full of all kinds of great ideas of how to solve problems in our own city that we don't even know the problem exists because we can't know about every problem in every neighborhood throughout the city all the time. So let our local absolutely yeah. yeah let our local experts who have entrepreneurial drive bring their ideas to solve the problems they've identified and we'll help them we'll help them have success solving those problems. So my point is I think you need this combination. You need apps that are offered by the city that are allow them to receive recommendations from citizens about problems or opportunities to improve things. You need town halls because not everyone uses technology and, and older people, for example, don't you want to get their feedback. You need um well I actually I'm real the data captured by the councils. I mean the amount of data that the councils capture yeah. that could be, you know, open sourced for entrepreneurs to use to solve some of those problems. I agree. The whole open data uh, strategy from cities has, has grown significantly in the last five years. And there are some cities that have over 1,100 databases of um, APIs and open data sources that are, and then they host hackathons where they say, all right, if you have, if you're a, a techie and you want to actually use open data and figure out how to create a valuable service out of it, we're going to host this hackathon and introduce you to other hackers who want to, you know, hack the city and come up with new ideas. So, yeah, there's all kinds of cool things you can do. But it takes leadership yeah. as well. It takes leadership. That's true. Well, it's been great talking to you about the entrepreneurship of the future and a path to getting there. Boyd, thanks for coming on the show today. It's always a buzz speaking with people who are plugged into what's happening globally in the smart city and blockchain space. So thanks so much for taking the time, Boyd. I really appreciate it. Lizzie, thanks for having me, and I hope your dog liked it. <laughs> My dog would love for you too. See you, Boyd. <laughs> sure.